Chapter Twenty One, Part Two of Clinical Medicine for Nurses by Paul H. Ringer, A.B. M.D. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Reading by Matt Perard. Chapter Twenty One, Part Two Typhoid Fever, Lobar Pneumonia. This disease may occur as a complication of typhoid fever. Attention is called to the chest by pain cough and rusty sputum the temperature may rise though if it is very high at the time of the onset of pneumonia no change may be observed the leukocytes are increased in number myocarditis this condition occurs in a measure in practically every severe case of typhoid fever where the patient is profoundly poisoned and the heart suffers from the effects of toxemia the symptoms are not characteristic weakness and some irregularity of the pulse being the main signs to be detected by the nurse tender toes frequently at the height of the disease or during its latter portion the tips and under surface of the toes become exquisitely tender so much so that the weight of the bedclothes produces intolerable suffering the condition is probably due to an irritation of the sensory nerve endings. Abscesses. These occur frequently, and no part of the body is immune from invasion. Typhoid bacilli are sometimes found in the pus. The symptoms vary so widely with the location of the abscess that no detailed description can here be given. In almost every case, there is local pain, heat, redness, and swelling if the abscess is on the surface of the body. A rise in temperature and at times the appearance of chills and sweats. Diarrhea. This occurs at the end of the second or during the third week and is a serious complication, being due to profound toxemia and deep intestinal ulceration. The stools may number from four to ten per day, and because of their frequency, prove a great additional drain upon a patient already overwhelmed with poison. Relapse By relapse in typhoid fever is meant a recurrence of the symptoms of the disease after the temperature has been normal for five or six days. The relapse resembles in every way the original attack save that it is usually much shorter and milder, though in no sense free from danger, as it attacks a patient already exhausted. A new crop of rose-spots may appear, the spleen again becomes enlarged, and any of the complications of typhoid, whether present before or not, may occur. Prognosis. The forecast in typhoid fever must always be guarded, the saying of Hippocrates being very appropriate. In acute disease, it is not safe to prophesy either death or recovery. Death rate is highest under two years of age. Death rate is lowest from two to fifteen years of age. Death rate is lower from fifteen to twenty-five than from twenty-five to forty. Death rate is higher over forty. Generally speaking, the mortality is from seven percent to ten percent. The following elements are to be considered in estimating the patient's chances for recovery. 
1. Toxemia. If it appears early, it is serious. If the patient refuses nourishment, and especially water, the outlook is grave. 2. Nervous symptoms. Delirium, etc., if occurring early, are of bad omen. 3. Pulse. Any rate over 120, save if very temporary, is a bad sign. Irregularity is always serious. 4. Lung complications. Pneumonia is very fatal. 5. Abdominal distension. Meteorism. If marked, is a bad sign, as it indicates intense toxemia. 6. Diarrhea. Always a bad sign, indicating severe toxemia. 7. Hemorrhage. Needs no further discussion. 8. Perforation. Recovery without operation is hardly to be credited. Prophylaxis. General municipal measures for the control of the typhoid situation and for the prevention of its spread when once present do not concern us here. Special measures in connection with the patient. Typhoid fever is a preventable disease. For every typhoid bacillus is within our power and under our control at the time it leaves the human body. Typhoid fever does not originate spontaneously, and every case must come from a pre-existing source. Consequently, if every typhoid bacillus were destroyed at the time it is cast off from the human body, the disease would soon be almost eradicated. The preventive measures presently to be enumerated and described concern the nurse more than anyone else for two reasons first for her own protection second because she is the one that must carry them out and it is due to her conscientiousness and never slacking attention that the measures prove efficient the physician in charge of a case leaves his orders as to prophylactic measures but if the nurse does not wholeheartedly and scrupulously execute them, they are practically of no value. A. Isolation. While, of course, this is not as necessary as in measles or diphtheria, yet the patient with typhoid fever should be alone, save for the nurse, as much as possible. There is no greater mistake than to allow members of the family to come in, sit down, and talk with the patient simply because the case is not a desperate one. The room should be arranged with due regard to attractiveness, but all heavy window draperies, carpets, etc., should be removed. There should be nothing in the room that cannot be easily and thoroughly cleaned. B. Disinfection of the following. 1. Stools. 2. Urine. 3. Sputum and vomitus. 4 clothing and bedding. 5. Bedpans, urinals, thermometers, syringe nozzles, etc. 1. Stools. Each physician has his own choice of the particular disinfectant to be used. The following are the agents most in use at present. 1. Bleaching powder. 3% solution. 2. Milk of lime. 1.8% solution. 3. Cresol. 1% solution. 4. Carbolic acid. 
5% solution. 5. Formalin, 10% solution. No matter which is used, the stool should be received into a bedpan containing some of the germicide, and after the patient has finished with the bedpan, enough of the disinfectant should be added to secure twice as much disinfectant as there is stool. Solid clumps of feces should be broken up with a rod and the whole mass thoroughly stirred and set aside, protected from flies, for two hours before being disposed of. 2. Urine Bichloride of mercury is the best disinfectant. A 1 to 1,000 solution is used, there being at least 1 40th as much of the bichloride solution as there is urine. Thus, one ounce of bichloride solution will disinfect 40 ounces of urine. It is best to keep the bichloride solution in a large jar and pour the urine into that from the bed urinal, the jar being emptied daily. The mixture of bichloride and urine should stand for at least two hours before being thrown away. 3. Sputum and vomitus. Neither of these is ordinarily obtained in typhoid fever, but when present, the sputum should be received in a sputum cup and burned, while the vomitus can be disinfected with the same germicide used for the stools. 4. Clothing and bedding. Gowns, sheets, pillowcases, etc. can be soaked in 5% carbolic acid or 10% formalin for two hours, then boiled. Rubber sheets to be soaked in carbolic, as boiling is injurious to them. 5. Bedpans, urinals, etc. Fill pans or jars with agent used for stools, then scald in water. Boil all enema tubes, syringes, nozzles, etc. Keep the thermometer in a glass or small bottle containing carbolic 5% or formalin, 10%. See to it that the patient has separate dishes, glasses, silverware, napkins. If possible, select some dishes and silver of a different pattern from that used by the rest of the household in order to prevent mistakes occurring. Precautions on the part of attendants. Great care is an absolute necessity. A basin of bichloride, one to one thousand should be at hand as well as plenty of hot water and soap whenever the nurse has been busy with the patient bathing giving an enema making the bed cleansing the buttocks after a stool etc she should carefully wash her hands with water soap and a brush and then immerse the hands for three minutes in bichloride remember that every germicide takes time to act and do not be misled as to the efficacy of the pale blue solution to the extent of believing that dabbing the tips of the fingers therein ensures absolute sterilization. Be sure to have a basin of bichloride and a clean towel for the doctor whenever he calls. When nursing a case of typhoid fever in a private house, Try in every way to avoid having anything whatever to do with the preparation or handling of the food for the rest of the family. Try, if possible, not to have to go to the ice chest. Have a little refrigerator for the exclusive use of the patient. 
if such arrangements cannot be made cleanse the hands with scrupulous care before touching any food whatsoever these precautions entail much hard work but their never-failing observance places the trained nurse where she rightly belongs in the position of a power for good in the community and in the family and in addition her preventative labors will greatly lessen her own chances of developing typhoid fever preventive typhoid inoculation an active immunity to typhoid fever can be brought about by the injection of dead typhoid bacilli the procedure is harmless rational and effective Rosenau. preventive inoculation against typhoid is a procedure to which every nurse should submit the vaccine is made from a 24-hour broth culture of typhoid bacilli killed by being heated to 60 degrees celsius for one hour injections are given every 10 days for three doses between 50 million and 500 million dead bacilli being injected at each dose there may be moderate evidence of reaction soreness with pain heat redness and swelling at the site of injection a moderate rise in temperature or a feeling of general malaise these symptoms appear within 24 hours after the injection and usually subside within 24 to 36 hours after their onset the immunity conferred lasts from three to four years and may be indefinitely continued by further inoculations Quote, as a striking instance of the protection offered by vaccination against typhoid may be quoted the result in the united states army during the maneuvers around san antonio texas in the summer of nineteen eleven all the men numbering twelve thousand eight hundred and one were inoculated from march tenth to may tenth two cases of typhoid fever occurred both patients recovering one patient was a private in the hospital corps who had not completed the series of inoculations having had but two doses the other was a teamster who had not been inoculated among the twelve thousand eight hundred and one men there were but eleven deaths from all diseases typhoid fever was prevalent at this time in the neighborhood in the city of san antonio there were forty nine cases with nineteen deaths Rosenau. treatment typhoid fever is a self-limited disease and we have no means at our command with which to shorten the attack as in the case of the great majority of maladies we are unable to treat the disease itself we must devote our time and care to treating the patient that is suffering from the disease while every physician prefers a certain routine treatment in typhoid fever especially as regards the diet there are certain fundamental principles so generally accepted and practiced that many or all of them will be made use of in by far the greater number of cases rest absolute rest in bed in the recumbent position with use of bedpan and bed urinal are essentials throughout the course of the disease and well into convalescence diet there are almost as many diets for typhoid as there are physicians treating the disease 
the quotes, diets vary from that of certain german authorities who withhold practically everything save water to the advocates of the high calorie diet which is decidedly liberal the diet in typhoid fever will be dealt with generally no hard and fast rules being laid down for none really exist the author contenting himself with registering his decided personal preferences for the more liberal methods of feeding liquid diet this is probably the most used reliance is placed on the following articles milk four to six ounces every four hours to which are added two ounces of lime water egg albumen the whites of two eggs every four hours alternating with the milk thus the patient receives nourishment every two hours many patients will successfully weather an attack of typhoid on these two articles of food if the milk disagrees or if the patient tires of it buttermilk whey kumis or even peptonized milk can be tried milk may also be taken with ease by many if the taste is disguised by the addition of a very small amount of tea or coffee ice cream is a very satisfactory food being nutritious palatable and readily taken especially by children clear soups are permissible but must be taken in addition to and not instead of other food their taste is pleasant but their nutritive value is slight tea and coffee are usually allowed in moderation unless in the opinion of the physician there exists some contraindication beef broths and artificially prepared foods are as a rule not necessary if the patient can take food at all he can take natural foods while it is an everyday clinical fact that hundreds of patients do well on the scheme of diet sketched above the advocates of more liberal feeding claim that by their method the patient is less emaciated less exhausted and more rapidly convalescent referring to the chapter on foods and nutrition it will be seen that an average individual weighing 70 kilograms 154 pounds needs practically 2200 calories of food in 24 hours while in a state of health when a victim of fever from whatever cause the tissues of the body are consumed oxidized more rapidly than normally and consequently an overplus of food is necessary under a strictly milk diet assuming that the patient takes two quarts daily the twenty-four hour total is but thirteen hundred calories the advocates of the high caloric diet which has been championed and elaborated mainly by doctors warren coleman of new york and shattuck of boston believe in pushing the caloric value of the diet up to three thousand calories in twenty-four hours and if this is well borne even exceeding that amount sometimes reaching four thousand to five thousand calories during convalescence the following table shows the variety of foods allowed together with their caloric value applesauce one ounce thirty calories bread average slice eighty calories butter one pat eighty calories cereal one and a half ounces fifty calories crackers one ounce 114 calories cream 
twenty per cent one ounce sixty calories eggs whole two ounces eighty calories egg white one ounce thirty calories egg yolk one ounce fifty calories lactose half an ounce thirty six calories milk whole one pint three hundred and twenty five calories potato whole medium ninety calories potato mashed half an ounce seventy calories boiled rice half an ounce sixty calories sugar cane one lump sixteen calories toast average slice eighty calories with this table at their command physician and nurse can work together and keep a very accurate record of the actual fuel value of the food the patient is getting no set rules can be given for the administration of the diet the patient is to take all he can but is not to be forced beyond the limits of comfort ardent advocates of this form of diet claim no marked emaciation no typhoid state many patients able to read and divert themselves during their illness patients able to be up and about sooner and feel stronger a quotation from an article by dr coleman is here appropriate Quote, the physician should possess at least a rudimentary knowledge of the caloric value of food but probably the chief requisite to the successful administration of the diet is intelligent cooperation on the part of the nurse where a nurse is trained in the use of the diet general directions regarding the total number of calories will suffice at her discretion she will increase or lessen the total amount of food or of particular articles while awaiting further instructions when a nurse is not trained in the use of the diet the physician himself must assume immediate control of the feeding unquote. water equal to if not surpassing the diet in importance is the amount of water taken by the patient too much water can hardly be given for it by its diuretic action it flushes out the kidneys and in addition by its presence in the tissues it serves to dilute and thus render less harmful the toxins of the typhoid bacillus practically all authorities agree that at least two quarts of water should be taken in twenty-four hours and many prefer their patients to take as nearly as possible one hundred ounces a little over three quarts daily the nurse must exercise vigilance and patience in order to persuade the patient to take the requisite amount of water but such efforts are well repaid for water is unquestionably the best medicine for typhoid fever hydrotherapy while the previous paragraph may well be termed internal hydrotherapy external hydrotherapy is probably the one most important method of treating typhoid fever hydrotherapy is practiced in three ways one sponges two packs three tub baths in hospital practice tub baths are generally preferred in private practice because of the number of attendants required to give the tub bath and because of the difficulty in securing a portable tub sponges and packs are usually resorted to the effect of all three is the same the tub bath being probably the most efficient 
Each physician has his own rule for the indications for hydrotherapy. In some hospitals, the routine order is a tub bath every three hours when the temperature is over 102.5 degrees. Baths, packs, or sponges are given for from 10 to 20 minutes, the first ones given being usually shorter. When the sponge or pack is used, the temperature of the water is usually about 70 degrees Fahrenheit, though that may be altered in each individual case. For the first tub bath, the temperature of the water is generally not under 85 degrees Fahrenheit, and the bath is never given at a lower temperature than 65 degrees Fahrenheit. It is not the intention of the author to go into the details of the technique of giving sponges, packs, or tub baths, as that more properly comes under the head of practical nursing, and the teaching of each training school varies in some of the details of the procedure. Advantages of Hydrotherapy A. Toxemia lessened. Probably the most important feature, patients practically comatose when the bath is begun can, at the end of 10 or 15 minutes, answer questions fairly intelligently. The typhoid state is more rarely seen under the use of the baths. Delirium and tremor are lessened, and there is lessened absorption and increased elimination of toxins. B. Temperature reduced. Contrary to the general supposition among the laity, reduction in temperature, while desirable and welcome, is essentially not one of the chief objects of the baths. At the height of the disease, the temperature may be but very slightly influenced, less than one degree, yet the general condition may be very markedly benefited. C. Circulation. The vasomotor system is stimulated. The general tone of the vessels is raised. The heart rate is lessened. The pulse is made smaller and harder, and blood pressure is raised. D. Respiration. With each bath, the patient takes a few full, deep breaths and thoroughly expands the lungs. This lessens the danger of passive congestion at their bases in the deep hollows present on either side of the spine. E. Digestion. Disturbances of this function are less common, and the mouth is usually in better condition due to lessened toxemia. F. Skin. Liability to bed sores is decreased. G. Mortality is lowered 5 to 7 percent. Contraindications to hydrotherapy. Baths should not be given in the presence of 1. Abdominal pain. 2. Hemorrhage. 3. Perforation. 4. Phlebitis. 5. Great prostration with failing circulation. 6. Any serious complication. General Measures The care of the mouth is all-important, and scrupulous attention on the part of the nurse to this disagreeable duty will often result in avoidance of the dry, brown, cracked, fissured tongue, the swords on the lips, and in lessening the bad taste and general cottony feeling of the patient's mouth. The mouth should be cleansed after each feeding, 
and special attention should be devoted to the tongue. Some good mouthwash is desirable, and toothpicks with the end wrapped in cotton can be dipped in this and rubbed over the teeth and gums. The lips should be frequently moistened with glycerin, vaseline, or some softening and soothing ointment. The care the nurse takes of her patient's mouth is a pretty good index of the general attention that patient is getting. The care of the skin is also very important. Frequent alcohol rubs should be given, after which a dusting powder should be applied. After each stool, the buttocks should be sponged with carbolic acid, 1 to 40% solution, and then freely powdered, care being taken to get the powder well into the natal cleft. At the slightest appearance of redness or irritation on the skin, Pressure should at once be relieved by means of a rubber or cotton ring, and the physician's attention directed to the irritated area that he may deal with it as he sees fit. Frequent change of position is very essential, as it lessens the chances of passive congestion in the lungs, and also lessens the occurrence of bed sores. Patients that are not very ill will change position of their own free will, but the stuporous patient will lie for days flat on his back. Such individuals must be rolled on the side, first on one side, then on the other, two or three times daily, for half an hour at a stretch, and retained in that position by means of pillows, bolsters, or sandbags. See that the patient voids plenty of urine, and that the bladder does not become over-distended, which can easily happen in stuporous patients. Routine drug treatment. Generally speaking, there is none in typhoid, drugs being used only to meet special conditions as they arise. The one exception to this rule is the use of hexymethylenamin urotropin in five grain doses three times daily to render the urine sterile. Treatment of complications. 1. Hemorrhage. The usual routine is discontinue all food until told to resume it by the physician in charge. Discontinue stimulants if they are being given. Give morphia, one quarter grain with atropin, one one hundred fifty grain hypodermically. Do not move bowels for three days. Then give an oil enema to be followed by a soap suds enema. Other measures as indicated by the physician. 2. Perforation. Immediate operation is the only treatment. 3. Thrombosis. Place the leg at absolute rest on a pillow. Move only when necessary and then with the greatest care. Do not rub the leg, as by doing so, bits of the clot in the vein may be detached, float about in the circulation, and by their final lodgment cause the death of the patient. 4. Failing Heart The methods of combating heart weakness are so varied that it is impossible to go into them in detail. Strychnia will be used, as also caffeine, various preparations of digitalis, and in many cases alcohol in the form of whiskey or brandy. In the event of sudden collapse, Treatment is similar to that given in detail in the chapter on 
lobar pneumonia qv five meteorism a simple diet and plenty of water lessens the occurrence of this distressing condition when it is present food is discontinued save water and turpentine is administered in the form of stoops and by enema six diarrhea diet cut to albumin water drugs as seen fit by the physician bismuth and lead acetate those most in use starch and laudanum enema sometimes given management of other conditions a toxemia water inside and out is the best treatment in addition to the water taken by mouth salt solution may be introduced by rectum murphy drip under the skin hypodermoclysis or into a vein infusion it may be necessary to feed the patient by means of a stomach tube b headache this condition is prominent usually only during the first week and is generally best controlled by the use of the ice bag it may become necessary to use drugs such as codeine c delirium being one of the manifestations of toxemia the free use of water is the best mode of treatment when delirium is continued active and is exhausting the patient a good dose of morphia hypodermically produces the best results at times delirium is so violent as to necessitate hyacinth while at others bromides will control it satisfactorily d constipation distinctly desirable aside from moving the bowels daily by enema nothing should be done to interfere with it e abdominal pain must always be looked upon as possibly a symptom of a serious complication heat or cold will often relieve it is not looked upon as wise to give morphia for the relief of abdominal pain in typhoid fever f tender toes remove pressure by making cradle use barrel hoops if necessary over the feet so that they will not come in contact with the bedclothes convalescence when the temperature has been normal for about a week the patient is usually allowed to be propped up in bed and three or four days later can be placed in a chair beginning to walk when strength permits the appetite of convalescing typhoid patients is proverbially large and care must be exercised lest they overeat in their enthusiasm the individual steps in convalescence vary so with the particular case that their enumeration or description is impossible general points in treatment one absolute rest as much isolation as possible two simple but not necessarily meager diet three water in abundance a inside b outside packs sponges baths four bowels to be let alone if not too loose five drugs only for special conditions none as a routine save hexymethylenamin urotropin to destroy typhoid bacilli in urine six constant never ceasing vigilance end of chapter twenty one part two